welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and fellow coaching colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on? i tell you what, Steve, the clock on the wall says it is time to give the people what they want. That is what we're here for. And before we dive into this week's fascinating, extraordinary topic, just a reminder that we put out your one-stop shop for coaches education, your tool that is your most impressive tool in your toolbox that helps you become a better coach, the Running Scholar Program, which is one part education with courses, training design, telling you when to do workouts, what workouts do, all that stuff. And then the other half, perhaps most importantly, it is a clubhouse, a place to talk, to chat, to meet other coaches, to solve coaching converse, coaching problems with the best method, which is deep, in-depth conversations with others. And let me tell you, John, that running the Scholar Clubhouse is popping. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. I go in there and I'm just like, oh, gosh, I got to scroll, scroll, scroll to figure out what in the world's going on because we got we got coaches talking about in-depth workouts and training design and strength training and warm-ups. We got coaches planning meetups at, at the high school national indoor championships. Yeah, it's how cool great. is that? <laughs> it's it's awesome. And it's mostly co- it's almost all coach driven. John and I are just sitting back watching this thing take off. So if you want part of that, if in, in addition to that, you want to join us for our um, monthly Zoom sessions where we get together and just uh, shoot the shit on, on our training topics and go dive deep, well, get on board. Here's one thing I like. I found this quote. I think it was, uh, you know, from Talib, uh, and the author of Anti-Fragile, you know, Black Swan, is education is valuable certifications are expensive. <laughs> and that's the idea of the scholar program is, is the education. It's really valuable. It's dynamic. It's in real time. You know, we have all these different modules which cover all these different areas, but there's no certification, right? We're not trying to say, oh, you're certified in this and this and this. Let's take your hundreds of dollars for this little piece of paper. I, I get like why people like the ideas of certification, but this is a more of a lifelong learning continuum. And that's the fun part about it. It's like you feel like a kid in a candy store. It's great. You know, like I'm, uh, you know, coaching at a small private high school uh, this spring, having a lot of fun with, you know, uh, high school age, middle distance and distance runners. And what I'm doing is I'm detailing on there in a special thread called inside a high school season, what we're doing every single day for training. So imagine it as workout of the day, but in real time, putting out, okay, here's what we did yesterday, the day before, et cetera. And we're doing, I'm posting that session every day with context and deta- details, updates, why I did it. And then coaches can chime in in real time and say, hey, can you explain this some more detail? Hey, can you post a video of what this looks like? And so I'm posting videos of distance runners doing wickets, distance runners doing um, surge training or lactate dynamic or alternation training, um, 
take in things about, okay, hey, here's the hurdle mobility work that we're doing. You get to see it in real time and people are swiping things, updating things, applying things to their own situation, whether they're coaching masters athletes, uh, club athletes, or high school athletes themselves. And it's just an amazing, valuable thing. And that's just like one little small part of the candy store. And, you know, Steve was saying it before. He's like, I feel like a kid in a candy store when I log in. I go, yeah, me too. It's great. Yeah, it's it really is amazing. So if you haven't yet, check it out. Get on board. We're always evolving it, always trying to make it better. As John said, you know, we're getting to, John's going daily updates on what they're doing. So you get to follow along in real time and ask questions in real time. And I think that's really cool because often when we come to our coaches education, we do after the fact right. evals, right? Mm -hmm. And we can paint the story or picture that we want. Well, now you get to see if it works, if it doesn't, where it goes wrong, where John has to say, oh, crap, like, we got to go another direction <laughs> <Yes>. here. <laughs> um, which is great, which is real, which is what we're going to talk about today, being real. Yes. And in this case, the rocky road to the top, embracing the messiness of training. And and I love this, and I didn't even think of this transition. We're just, you know, that good right now, John, is that when you go day by day, like you're doing in the Scholar program, in the Scholar Clubhouse, it really gets to the messiness of it. Because... Training, the training process is messy. Yeah, it's pretty darn sloppy. It, it is not this nice linear path, this nice curated path up the mountain that brings us to the holy, holy grail, whatever it is, the best performance. It is not. And as coaches, we know that, right? We sit there and we say, you know what? We look back on our training and we're like, holy crap, like it was up and down, up and down. And Yet, we hold on to this ideal, this myth, that it should be this linear, curated, straight path that takes us from slow to peak performance. And it's just not. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember when Andrew Reading retired from pressure running. He gave me all his um, training logs from college. And you read through it, and it is the most sloppy zigzag rocky road i've ever seen like one day in training he does one quarter in 68 and this is at the, at the height of his collegiate prowess like you know after he became an olympian in the 800 right one day it's like one quarter at 68 you know and then he's like oh, a little bit of calf tightness so vin has him jog a little bit jog 10 minutes and then do like a 240 and you're like okay and then a 200 and like 36 and then a cut down you know in like really really uh elementary style cut down like just and you could tell what vin was doing in uh that report was he was saying how much can work can we do to not aggravate the calf but maintain a semblance of fitness or um, reinforcement of these kind of finer motor patterns we want for a middle distance runner and this is like right before pen relays. <laughs> and so the workout ended up being like, you look at you, well, this is really not impressive for a guy of his credentials, like 145 in the time, right? No super shoes, but it's, you know, one times a quarter at 68, 10 minutes jogging, eight times 200, cutting down from 40 to like 28, not, not impressive, 200 meter like jog recovery. That was the session. 
And you could tell it was definitely a kind of um, fly by the seat of your pants, like plan B, C, D, F session. Like, all right, let's see what we can do for the day. And a lot of his training when he was performing at his highest level in college is very, very haphazard. It looks very haphazard and rocky like that. And you go, how are you able to do that? Well, because training isn't what we read about in all these books or these nice, neat schedules you get um, in a lot of um, training literature. Like Steve said, that's a package after the fact to make it a very seem like a very coherent um, pathway when it's really a much, much more a zig and zag road. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little we write the perfect story, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's what we all do. I mean, I do it. You do it. Every <laughs> every coach does like we write the perfect story in our training. And that's just not reality. And I think that's important because in coaches education, often we sit there and, you know, even in some certification courses, you mentioned the test is literally to write the perfect training plan, right? The test for the certification is like, you know, give me a training plan that is, you know, three months peak, for this 10K athlete who does this many miles, blah, 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 blah. And you're supposed to show that you can write a great training plan and periodize it and blah, 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 and you get graded on that. But the real test to me is that how do you manipulate and modulate the training when you are going through these rocky times or the mess of it all? And you know, we've all been there, John, where it's like you're sitting, the Andrew Weeding example is great because you're sitting there, you're watching workout. Maybe it's a little off. Maybe something looks a little wrong. Maybe they're running a little bit slower. It's in those moments that I think good coaching is defined because like you have to sit there and, and go against the pull of like, well, I had 10 400s written down today. And if I don't do them today, then like that's going to mess up because I've got the next workout planned in two days and we're going to blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Like that's the temptation. And I get it. That's the pull because we like simple, cohesive narratives and stories that lead us from A to B to C, right? And we like the plan. But the, the test comes when you're like weeding when you're sitting there being like, well, my prediction for this workout going this way did not end up how I thought. How do I adjust? What do we do instead? And I think, you know, putting a pin in it, it's very ironic because the body, biology, uh, human beings are complex adaptive systems. And the thing about systems is they're complex, meaning different than complicated, right? So complicated means we know all the parts. There's a lot of parts. Building a um, spaceship is complicated, but we know how to do it. We know all the elements and factors and play to put it together. There's a lot going on, a lot of moving pieces, but we know everything. Complex means we know a good amount about something, but we don't know all the influences at play. So like you're not sitting there measuring the hormonal you know, or a release of cortisol in the athlete when they wake up in the morning or the testosterone boost they get after doing some weight training and the residuals for that over, say, and the decay rate of it over, say, the course of a day or weeks, right? We don't know that. So it's complex. Yet the irony is 
what I found is there's a lot of certainty in the physiological literature of endurance training. And it's just certain. Like, but it's the irony is like we're the most certain about the thing that is the most uncertain. <laughs> and there's an awful table I was exposed to early on in my coaching career. And it really set me down the wrong orientation. That's like rate of decay of aerobic fitness, aerobic fitness, right? And it was like it like scared the bejeebus out of you because you're like, after one day, dun, 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 after two days, dun, 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 dun. and so you get this mindset like, oh, if I don't do aerobic activity in a couple, I've lost all this quote unquote fit. And you, I have athletes who think that to this day, right? And I have to be like, no, it doesn't work quite that neatly, right? Even though we'd like to believe that. And so it creates this obsessiveness about having to train every day versus again, going back in the literature and going back at a lot of very successful runners, even Canova's athletes, right? When Canova's athletes peak, you know, last week, he's like, oh, they travel, they travel, you know, it's Kenya, they go to Japan, they go to uh, every day, all day travel, no, no, no running, no nothing, no nothing. And it's like three days, no nothing. And it's like, no big deal, right? Versus a Westerner type athlete, if they, before their peak event, did three days of nothing, <laughs> have a little conniption, right? So it's also like we got to understand too, like sometimes have the humility to understand the things we think we're so certain about, lactic acid, the importance of VO2 max at a certain time in history might not actually be the thing that actually is the determinal difference maker. It has an influence, but it's not the determinant. So, you know, when you tell that story about days off, two things that come up to mind is one, the old, you know, old story of uh, Fred Wilt talking to his protege, the, um, American record or the world record holder for a bit in the, uh, in the marathon. Why am I blanking on his name? Right. Buddy Edelin. Um, and he writes in his log after Edelin, uh, ran, you know, I don't know, like eight miles the day before his race. Right. Uh, Fred Wilt writes literally because they're exchanging postcards essentially with his training logs back in, this is back in like the fifties. Um, he writes, this is a manifestation of uncertainty, you know, and I forget the rest of the quote, but it was great because it just gets at the point that, Hey, there's this, this doesn't help. And it may hinder here for you. Like just chill out, like stop, like don't, don't drive yourself nuts. The other more modern example I like to use in terms of this decay is the old Bernard Lagat mm. who would take like literally two months off mm -hmm. after every season. Yeah. October, November. Yeah. And he just does two months and then he'd have to get ready for indoors or whatever. And you know, the rest of us, if we got injured for two months would be like, Oh my gosh, my season's done. I like during that time frame, I'm not going to be ready for indoors. I'm just going to skip it so I can build my base and get ready for outdoors. And here's the best, most consistent athlete in, you know, distance runner in American history, certainly um, taking two months off voluntarily. And, and the point of this is that we have these kind of nice, neat narratives of, this is how much, you know, time off 
hurts you. This is how frequently you need to run. This is how frequently you need to do your long run. This is how many interval sessions you need to do. This is the time last workout that will benefit you before your peak race, et cetera, et cetera. And it's important to know that those are rules of thumb, sometimes based on better data, sometimes based on coaches just passing the same thing down for years and years. And the messiness of training comes in when you start realizing like, hey, sometimes that's not true. You know, an example we talked about a while ago is the the high school footlocker champion, Natalie Cook, who trains like whatever it was, 15, 20 miles a week. You know, anyone else would tell you, oh, that's not aerobically enough to get this blah, blah, blah. And yes, she supplements with a lot of cross training, but still people would tell you cross training, you know, the data says cross training doesn't transfer as well, blah, blah, blah. You need this specific stuff. Well, here's an example of a kid running incredibly well, you know, that violates some of these norms, some of these rules. But also she's a kid and kids typically should be exposed to a lot of general fitness, general training, right? And we mistake specific in general in running because running, if you're a four minute mile or eight minute pace is not specific aerobic development. It's general aerobic development. So if I'm Natalie Cook and I'm cross training, any and we know with younger youth athletes, general development has implications for specific development because any development at that age improves its specificity. You could just bench press all day and you'd become a better runner at that level. Why? These general carryovers to the specificity of thing. We also forget the training stage the athletes in matters as well. Yes, that is very true. That is very true. And I think, you know, this gets to the messiness of training too, is the stage matters as well. And the accumulated volume of work, you know, Canova was uh, often pointed out in his work. And if you look at the running scholar program, you know, this in our Canova section where he would, he would say, I am going to increase the volume of the athletes training. And then I'm going to decrease it (laughs) over the time, you know, for years. And if you look at, uh, for example, the, the, uh, Shaheen, the world record holder in the steeplechase, I remember this, this very simple graph uh, that Canova had where it was like for three years, every year the max volume went up. And then for the next three years, the max volume went down. And it was pretty simple. It's like Canova's like, I built up the general volume. Like I built it up. Now I just need to maintain it when I'd have these conversations with them and ask. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes that makes sense, right? There's a time to build. There's a time not to. And I think often we uh, we miss out on this kind of messiness of the specificity or the stage that athletes are in. And we confuse the hell out of it because, you know, the, the other part I, and this is a truism that I think holds is, for a while at least, the bigger your foundation that you've established over the years, the easier it is to maintain stuff. You don't need the amount of volume that you need needed maybe three, four, or five years ago because yeah. you've been doing it consistently for a while. 
Yeah, and I mean, for younger athletes or for any athletes, like there is general carryover for things. Like my junior year of high school, that summer before it, I got into like long distance touring cycling, right, with my father. So we'd go do like Seattle to Portland, you know, long distance tours, 200 miles in one day, right? You're on the bike for like 10 hours, like pedaling, or go up, you know, right up to the top of Mount St. Helens on the road to the uh, the summit view and back. And that's like, a hundred miles in a day. And we do these like week long tours called like cycle Oregon or ride the Rockies where it's you're riding anywhere from like 60 to like a hundred miles a day. So you're on the bike for four to six hours, you know, you stop and taking breaks and stuff. But like, I just did that all summer. And then I came back and played soccer. Most yeah, that was, I was the, I was the varsity sweeper soccer team, you know, and we have soccer and cross country in the same year. And I did some cross country training and races here and there, but not that much. But I ended up getting like six in the state in Oregon that year in cross country, doing very little specific cross country training. Why? In the summer of just right hundreds and hundreds of miles on the bike, hours and hours of general aerobic development that carried over for several months, even though I did no or very little, like maybe 20, 30 miles a week, you know, running, if that, like my runs consisted of like three miles in the morning at six minute pace around this little park by my house before I went to school and then soccer practice. And then maybe like a, you know, on a down day or a weekend, maybe join haphazardly the cross country runners for a longer run or a workout, just very willy nilly winging it. And it worked out pretty solid, right? So I think we have, we have to remember like all these things should be thought of as flexible guidelines rather than like rigid frameworks, templates, or formulas to be mindlessly followed. And when you remember the flexible guidelines and the more exposure you have to different guidelines, then your decision-making in the moment as a coach can better benefit your athlete when they do meet that impasse or that dead end or that unplanned hiccup. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the it's like that flexibility. And I always call it, you know, constraints. Sometimes these constraints free us up. You know, some of the my my most influential coaching insights have come when I've had an athlete who for either injury or build or whatever hasn't been able to train in a traditional manner. Mm, yeah. And you always, you always learn something, you know, I'm thinking back and I remember an 800 guy coached who was a multiple time conference champ and made the first round of nationals, you know, se- several times. Um, and he just had some health issues where he couldn't recover well. So he trained sometimes like three days a week with limited aerobic stuff that we had to figure out. And he ran everything from, again, 149 all the way to just under 32 minutes for 10K and cross country off sometimes, as I said, three days a week, four days a week of training, not a lot of volume. And we had to get super creative, you know, and like do different workouts. And sometimes I remember he he went through a period because of, again, some mechanical injury stuff where he couldn't do turns on the track. So everything got converted to like 100 meter segments, (laughs) essentially to stay fit for uh, for an indoor, I believe it was indoor track championship. 
Um, so he's doing 100 meters for getting every single adaptation from aerobic to, you know, to speed, to speed endurance. And it was just hundreds, you know, and there's tons of insight like like this. I remember, you know, actually when I was in college, I think this training log is still out there. Zap Fitness had a had a uh, a low three four like a 341, 340, 1500 guy who did cross training on every single easy day and only did the workouts running because he had a long injury history. And he still ran, as I said, like 340, something like that. This was back in the early 2000s. So that was fast back then. Um, but it's like sometimes these athletes who have some sort of constraint, whether that's injury-related, health-related, mechanical-related, whatever, really free you up to see, okay, these truisms that I thought were requirements, there's actually other pathways, other paths to get to them. We can get to this adaptation in another manner. We just have to be a little creative. Yeah, and that's the key, right, is having that um, ability to see the nuance in training and what we're actually trying to drive. And this is the concept of mileage. A lot of people think of mileage as just one big chunk of thing. Like any step where your heart gets elevated is a mile, right, or adds to your mileage. And so I'd argue, well, is walking around the house mileage? Is walking up a flight of stairs mileage? You're technically upright. Your heart's rate is getting elevated than it, you know, if you were laying down on the couch. So what is mileage, right? And we have to think really critically about this and think about specificity, you know, development, and also general. And a lot of times we read, oh, they're doing crazy mileage. But if you look at it, it's a lot of general mileage for general aerobic development and or general recovery or recuperation. It's a different modality. And Sometimes the athlete might have gone so hard or the severity of their training or intense session and that stimulus require them to then take long periods of general development or general aerobic flush to help them bounce back quicker. And this gets lost so often because of silly things like the 10% mileage increase rule. Remember, there is no science behind the 10% mileage. It's just Abby Burfoot was like, yeah, you should do that. And her runners were all cool. And everyone liked it. And it stayed in the, the zeitgeist because it made sense. And it like speak to people's linear periodization mindset. Oh, I just run 10% more this week than I did next week. And it's a safe way to do that. <laughs> no, it makes no sense <laughs> if you look at that. But it's if you're if you anchor your coaching practice in numbers rather than actually improvement and getting people ready for competition, it becomes a different game. Like coaching high school again, what I realized is, you know, a lot of kids don't know how to run, right? I asked them the other day, I go, who taught you how to ride a bike? They named a person. Who taught you how to swim? They named a person. Who taught you, if you go to driving age, how to drive a car? They named a person. Who taught you how to walk? And they're like, uh, myself. I go, mm-hmm. Who taught you how to run? Uh, myself. And I go, look, this is the reason we're doing wickets all the time. Like we do more wickets for my kids than our sprint team does every day, daily wickets. And we even have what we call wicket refresh, right? So what happens is a lot of times kids don't know how to position the limbs when they strike the ground. That creates impact issues and a lot of below the knee aches and pains, sore calves, shin splints, uh, Achilles, tendonitis, tendinopathy, uh, plantar stuff, whatever, right? But if you strike the ground correctly, 
you know, with your shank or your shin perpendicular to it, very that uh, they magically start to evaporate and go away, right? So when a kid's coming to me and say, oh, coach, I got a kind of a tight calf or sore this. And they're like, oh, I want to roll it out. I want to do this. I go, let's go back in the wickets and run through the wickets and see if it hurts. And then they run through the wickets and, and invariably it's like, oh, the pain's gone. I go, it's a loading issue. Your body's trying to tell you the way you're loading when you hit the ground or striking the ground is not advantageous. It's ouchy. So don't do it like that. Do it like it is in the wickets. And over the course of the last two weeks, we've been able to transition people who are moving very sloppily or had poor motor patterns or rough sketches of how to run to very, very proficient. And it's been really amazing because again, high school kids can respond really quick. They're kind of like clean slates, blank slates. They just go with it, but no shin splints, no aches or pains below the knee. None of that is, we didn't do any stretches. We didn't do any rolling out. We just got them back in the wickets and showed them how to run again and what that motion actually is. And so it's setting them up to more safely execute the workloads that I'm going to ask them to do in training versus just like, oh, oh you got a sore calf. Uh, yeah, I guess stretch it out, ice it you know, this, this kind of like passive treatment modality versus no, let's take an active approach and actually say, why are your sh um, shin sore? Why is the calf sore? Why is that soft tissue getting tight? And then we realize it's a loading error and then we correct the loading error. Life's good. Yeah. That's a, that's a good example of, again, seeing a issue or problem and then figuring out how to correct it, which is <laughs> if you think back to, we, we've talked about training as messy, right? And part of that messiness is like potential loading errors or injuries or what have you. And most of our heuristics are just that, like heuristics designed to like minimize or prevent that. So we look at the 10% the rule. Why did that come about? Because people like people were having lots of loading errors. <laughs> and, and someone was saying, you know what? Maybe if we just like dampen this down a little bit and tell people don't increase your mileage by 10%, it'll help. And that's where it comes from. And sometimes that's worthwhile. And other times you can throw it out the window. You know, when, when I was in high school, for example, coming off of a break, literally I would go from like, you know, a nice break, a couple of weeks off, whatever it was, zero miles a week because it's break to 50 to 100 in like two weeks, you know. And I'd be fine because I was a high school kid who was running okay and resilient and had been up to 90, 80, 100, whatever it was before. So it was like used to it. Would I recommend that to everybody? No, I would not. Don't, but you had the go. background to preface it, right? Yes. So like, and that's always been my kind of rule of thumb for if we're talking about mileage and or if we're talking about intervals even of how much fast work to do. I always think of it first as, well, what's the most recent, like, where have you recently been? You know, in my case in high school mileage, you know, I was clicking off 80 mile weeks like nothing my senior. So it wasn't a big deal. I recently been there for a very long time. If we look at workouts, right? Well, should we do eight, 400s, 10, 12, 16, 20 at whatever pace? Well, what have I recently handled? Same thing when I, you know, one of the things that I would often think about when we look at training, 
especially is I would never look at, okay, you know, this is the workout where when we do mile pace stuff, we're supposed to get this much volume, you know, whatever for adaptation. I'd never do that. I want to look at what the individual in front of me, where they have been. Okay. <laughs> and that kind of determines where I go, especially when we would start doing our like sprint or speed endurance work. Because what I found, especially with my middle distance guys, is a little in the wrong way creates too much fatigue and, and leads to disaster. Because your high forces putting a high biomechanical load on someone. And if you do one too many of, let's say, you know, 150s at near max, it's disaster time. Yeah, you can burn the toast real quick. <sighs> yeah. So again, you know, sometimes that's why for, you know, especially early on, but for specific people, the workout literally might have been like two 150s at, you know, again, near max, we'll say nine, whatever, near max. So not quite all out, but something like a little faster than 400 speed. Sometimes that was the workout, like two 150s. And you'd sit back and you'd be like, is that enough for a stimulus? Is like, well, it doesn't really matter in terms of adaptation. This is what their body can handle right now. So this is what we're going to do. And I think that's where we get this kind of messiness of training is we like it to be really precise. We like to have it like A leads to B, et cetera, et cetera. But you got to take what the athlete's giving you. And by take what they give you, I mean, what can their body handle? What the, can their mind handle? What can their, you know, all of it, biomechanically, neurally, psychologically, physiologically, what are they, what are they able to give you, not only overall, but on that day? And sometimes on that day, it's very little and you have to pivot and adjust really quickly. And this comes to not a heuristic, but a fundamental truth is everyone has different rates of adaptation. And we forget that, right? We see these studies or we see this training of, you know, this high caliber athlete or historical athlete or this coach says, this is my training system. Here it is, black and white, straightforward. But it doesn't take into account the reality is everyone has different rates of adaptations in different directions and different uh, areas too, right? The famous example, the hard easy principle and the individuality of that is Kenny Moore and Prefontaine, right? Kenny Moore needed at least two days easy after a session, like real easy jogging on the grass, no big deal, versus the very next day, Prefontaine could go out and hammer, um, you know, six, seven miles at 530 pace, no prob. One reason we got to understand it is body size, right? Kenny Moore is a tall and lanky guy. Free was squat and stout. So it's just physics at that point because longer levers, more work's done by moving those levers through space. So more beat up, right? You could also, when you understand how tall Andrew Weeding is, it makes sense that that training was so erratic and sloppy because he has a higher threshold of work he's subjecting his body to by moving his long limbs through space and time, putting more loading, more pressure mechanically as well as physiologically on his system versus, you know, this short little guy, right? And when we look at like, say, Gebrselowski or Kipchoge in person, they're small dudes. They're, they're not hot. They're not big. <laughs> and people are like, Oh, I want to be marathon like that. And you go, I go, dude, you're six one. You got a lot of surface area on your skin to keep cool during a marathon, man. You got a, you're, you have bigger femurs, you have bigger tibias, fibulas, like you got a bigger foot. 
this is going to be really difficult. It's not, it's just physics at this point, right? That's part of Kipchoge's talent is he's small. So just to be frank, I mean, I've never met a big old, like Paul Turgot might be the lone exception of a tall marathoner that's the, that, at, that held a world record in the modern era. Yeah, I mean, and part of that is too, is is it, it it shifts. And that's what I think often we forget is the individual, we, we need to take to time to understand the individual that's coming to us. Because not only biomechanically, which you touched on, but also physiologically, it changes things. So why, let's let's take the Terragot example as well versus someone smaller. Well, think about that in terms of cooling right? Larger surface area, heat builds up, more more area to cool, et cetera, et cetera. That's why often you see the small kind of compact, lighter person like can handle the heat better yeah. oh, than yeah. the very, very lanky, you know, Paul Tergot, for example. Skin's in Oregon, or, man. Skin's in Oregon. Yep. Can't forget that. So a, a, again, we look at some of these things and I'm not saying like obsess over this X, Y, and Z, but this is the messiness, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the 800 meter runner who I talked about, who I had to, you know, limit their volume and change all this stuff. Why was that? We talked about biomechanical injury. The dude had enormous feet, enormous <laughs> feet, which changed things oh, yeah. sig- significantly. And that's where a lot of the loading issue, even though like mechanically it was very sound, it just, that changed the dynamics of, you know, his foot literally was not only, you know, long, but also wide where there was not a single spike where his, his, his foot would fit in the spike. It would be hanging literally over the edge of the spike. So when you do, when you do things like that, it shifts the mechanical load and you have to take that into account, whether again, biomechanically, physiologically, not saying that you can't be successful as, you know, a tall marathon runner. I mean, there's a tear God's a great example. There's others. Yeah. Jason it Hartman, our the, example. Yep. It, it shifts, it just shifts the dynamics and the limiting factors a little bit, which also shift sometimes often like how you can train and what you can handle. Yeah. It's that's why you can't translate, oh, this is the magic number of miles you need to run. I mean, it's always going to be a tolerance, right? And everyone's tolerance is, like you said, different for where they are at different stages of the journey. Um, you know, another example of like, say, very atypical training buildups is last season, you know, working with Daniel Herrera again, uh, after like, you know, the initial COVID uh, lockdown, you know, shutdown shock, right? He got it and he took six months off of nothing. Six months, right? And then it looked like, oh, hey, they're in 2021. There, there might be some semblance of a season. We should, you know, kind of get ready to go. Okay. So what we do, the first month was just spent lifting. Like we just got back in the weight room and had him lift because if we're going to run fast again, he needed to be strong again. And luckily strong comes back quickly, but mechanically kind of all the load in the connective tissue, the muscle bellies, et cetera, we needed to reestablish and reintroduce that. So we only could probably pick one thing after six months of doing nothing. And then from there, we built out the running off the foundation of lifting. 
and it worked out well. I ran sub four again, you know, happy, 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 you know, competitive at the, the national domestic level again after six months of nothing. So it's, it's just a matter of like, you got to see the problem you have and then evaluate the different potential solutions. And that whole concept of the training plan is it's your roadmap to say, okay, essentially experiments, right? I, I want to instill this stimuli to have this reaction in the organism to build up this capacity or this ability. Is that happening in the time frame? I'm thinking in as anticipated with the um, collateral damages that I think are going to happen as well. Because we've got to remember too, aches and pains are okay at a certain time in the training program. And I reminded my high school athletes of this, you know, this week, it's second week of track practice. They have some normal aches and pains, what we would call soreness, right? If you have DOMS or soreness and it's, you know, pretty uniform and you're anticipating it, it's great. Like kids saying, oh man, my hip flexors are really, um, you know, sore. I go, well, that's because you're moving in a bigger range of motion than you have been moving probably in the last ever <laughs> daily with the wickets and running faster and really getting that emphasis of that range of motion, the hip flexor. That's to be expected. That is okay. Now, if someone comes to me with like, ouch, this hurts every step of the way pain, that's a whole different dialogue. But we often forget in training that, yeah, there will be this quote unquote feeling of being beat up. You know, like when I do heavy kettlebell swings with my kettlebell coach, the next day, my hamstrings are in two days. Sometimes my hamstrings are on fire because the eccentric loading that that heavier kettlebell um, prompted in that session and that DOMS, that delayed muscle onset soreness from that heavy eccentric loading pattern in the hamstring has kind of long residuals, but that's okay. That's expected. And if something else popped up, you know, like a, a really sore quad that's pinpointed in one area in the quadricep, that might be cause for concern. So I think we also remember the rocky road sometimes is this concept that beat up and aches and pains are part of the training journey, and we don't need to sit in the ice bath. We don't need to roll out. We don't need the therapy gun. We don't need the uh, the Norma Tech boots. We don't need those things because that that is part of the adaptation cycle. Is that uh, you know response um, inflammatory response is something we want. We don't need the anti-inflammatory ibuprofen, what Viox, whatever you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and sometimes and often it, it it can get in the way, right? Be- because like, especially if you look at dampening down inflammation, if inflammation is the signal to adapt and you get rid of it, you know, uh, chemically or whatever, ice bath, whatever it is, well, you've just removed the signal and your body's going to go, you know, hey, What's the point? Like, we don't need to adapt. We're taking care of it. So, you know, what do we do? So when we look at at training and recovery, sometimes you don't want to get rid of that signal. Sometimes you want to let it run its course. And that's what I, it's like taking what your body gives you. And that tells you where you're at and what you can handle. So a while ago, back when I was coaching, you know, college kids, et cetera, for one season we tracked, I had kids fill out a daily form. Oh yeah. I remember that. Of how they felt and a a bunch of different variables. And it was fascinating because some kids would feel great after we did hill sprints 
And some would feel like I'm trashed, you know, and some would feel great a day after some two, some three. And for the individual athlete, the pattern emerged for certain workouts, right? Some would feel energized after the day after a long run. Some would like be like, I, you know, rated a a one out of 10. I feel the worst I ever have. Okay. So you got to understand what works for the individual and then uh, that often like the messiness is because we have this singular expectation and we don't take time to see, okay, how does this person adapt? How does this person respond to this various training? That's why, you know, one of the intake on any intake form I have for athletes, I always ask them, you know, how do you respond to these workouts? Are you a quick responder or a slow responder? Do you need, do you feel like you need a lot of these? How are you in terms of fatigue or soreness after these? Like, do short, fast repeats beat you up or do you feel great and energized afterwards? You've got to figure out their pattern. Yeah, I mean, that's so key, right? And yet we we sometimes, when you take a, this is my quote unquote training system and you try to fit everyone into that, no matter shape or size, that's where, you know, things can go awry really quickly. And sometimes, yeah, the people who can conform to that training system end up rising to the top, right? There's some professional training groups out there. It's like, this is how we do it. This is how it is here. And it's either make or break and literally make or break. Like either you're made into like an Olympian or you're just phenomenally broken and never heard from again, right? That's a certain calculus people take. However, I think at the end of the day, like our job as coaches is to be the steady hand at the wheel for the athlete, right? If we're that steady hand at the wheel and they come to us with concerns or they come to us um, or we notice that they're struggling when we don't want them to be struggling in a, in a fashion during an exercise or workout, our steady hand has to be able to provide that, you know, uh, consultation and guidance and reassurance that everything is going all right. Everything is going according to plan. Versus if you're a, you know, the coach by the number coach and it's like, oh, we said 10 miles today. You're only getting five in. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Got to make it up. Alarm bells. Ding, 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 ding. Like that's going to create a much more anxious and, uh, you know, nervous type athlete because they think now I'm lacking or I'm behind the curve. And I see this all the time. Interesting, like triathlon. Like I talked to a lot of you know, uh, there's several tri- master triathletes in the area and there's like, oh, I'm so fatigued. I'm so exhausted, but I got to do, uh, you know, 16 times 200 at my 3k effort. I go, what are you insane? <laughs> go home, take a nap. Like that you like, yeah, you're doing. And this is, I think a really important thing to remember is John Wooden's quote, don't mistake activity for achievement. Yeah. You're doing the activity of this workout in a very hyper fatigue state. And if you're really, really exhausted, complaining overly about fatigue every step, and the design is not is to get you better at something very technically difficult, like say 3k type effort running, um, you know, which has a really high mechanical load because it's pretty darn fast and you need that foot to react off the ground pretty quickly, but you're already so fatigued that you feel like you're heavy footed might not be the best time to do that. Right. But again, step back. Maybe the coach is like, Hey, look, we're in general prep. 
or early first half of the training um, periodization scheme or, or training period of running or uh, of triathloning. And then, yeah, being beat up and fatigued might be okay. Like that to me is kind of how I structure like my periodization in a year or for a season is the first half of the season when you're kind of in that general and development period of preparation, it's okay to be tired, beat up and fatigued. That's, that's the design. That's fine. Just do the work monkey. Right. But then when we move into the specific and performance period, that's when we want less beat up and fatigue, right? Cause we're more concerned about the specificity and ability and you bet your buns in the performance period or the peak period, there should be no fatigue. There should be no doms. There should be no beat up. There should be not, you should be feeling ready to go. You should minimize all that catabolic response, right? So also knowing where you are in the training cycle is important to be able to interpret for the athlete, their experiences and give them that reassurance and be that steady hand on the wheel. Yeah. You know, I love that you pointed out there is like knowing when, when they need to feel good and when it's okay to feel a little, little beat up, you know, um, my high school coach used to, you know, put this pretty succinctly when we were starting our, our kind of summer based training. And if you've ever done summer training in Houston, Texas, you know, it's miserable and you're never going to feel good. Yeah. <laughs> True story. <laughs> So if you ever visit anyone in Houston, Texas in the summer and done any training, you know, it's miserable. And you're going to feel good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at my high school coach would just sit there and be like, Hey, you know what? These runs are going to feel horrible for a while. That's okay. Expect them to feel horrible. Like you'll eventually come around. You know, I remember he'd tell us, he'd like one day you're going to feel magically good again, but like that day might not come for a while. Just put in the work. And like what he meant by that is not, hey, you're going to feel horrible and injury. You're just going to feel kind of blah and trashed and just like going through the motions and blah, blah, blah. But he'd frame it so that that was kind of expected and okay during this period because he knew summer high school training in Texas, in Houston sucks. And it's not going to feel good because it's always humid uh, among another of many factors. But he also knew that, you know, we were going to get through that. And then eventually, once we get into, you know, a different phase of training and some better weather and all that stuff, that would change. And it's, it's knowing. And at the same point, he also didn't load us up with much stress besides literally running easy plus like some hill sprints, essentially, was all we did in the summer. Nothing hard ever. Uh, hard in terms of, you know. Um, volume of our intensity of workouts until we got to a little closer to the fall and cross country season, because again, the training load of, Hey, what are you trying to adapt to? And I think setting that framing of this is how you should feel like, let's be realistic. And we talk about the Rocky road to the top. It's not this, you know, Hey, let's, let's set the stage for this perfect manicured path up, set the stage of, what reality looks like. And if you set that stage up with your athletes, hey, this is going to be a little bit messy. Hey, you're not going to feel the greatest on all the days. Same with early races. Hey, you might feel a little bit flat. That's okay. 
hey, you might not feel at your best when we, you know, roll into this early season cross country or track meet. You might not have that pop in your step. That's fine. We're learning how to maneuver through this. And then on the flip side, tell them, I promise you, there's going to a period where this changes, where you're going to start feeling better, when we're going to rest and recover or whatever have you. But setting that foundation often gets rid of some of these fears and and all that, that that often get in our way. Yeah, my high school coach would say, all right, for the first six weeks of the season, I have your legs. I, your legs are in a box. I'm going to keep your legs. You're not going to feel good. You're not going to feel fresh. I got your legs. And then he goes, the last six weeks of the season when, you know, we got the bigger dual meets and invites and qualifying for state and everything. I'll give you your legs back. And he always said, oh, I'm giving you your legs back. Watch. And like he, he get really excited too. And he thought it was the cheesiest thing, but it was his way to communicate that. Like the expectation is anchored in early season. Yeah, you're going to be tired, exhausted, you know, relative fatigue. But now, oh, you got your legs back. Let's see what you can do. And he really, you know, in a very easy to digest way for a high school athlete, made it kind of fun, made it kind of goofy. So... You know, I just remember remembering that as you uh, talk, Steve, it's like that's almost, you know, part of the the journey to the top of any season or any career is understanding these ups and downs are a normal part of the process. And I think now more than ever uh, in the manicured social media environment kids live in, athletes live in, is this concept that like workouts are pretty. No, workouts are sloppy, messy endeavors, right? And I remind athletes all the time, I want you to, yeah, it's going to be sloppy and messy here, so it's pretty on race day. Racing is what matters. Competition's the thing that matters. The workout is just a preparation for the actual performance. And we lose sight of this when we say, oh, this person did this amazing workout. Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's so, it was so just even split pretty method like if it's a real problem i think and should be a real red flag if all you see are pretty workouts that means either it's not real or someone's enhancing it somehow because i've never coached an athlete where every workout was pretty i've coached many athletes who achieved a lot with i'd say over 80 percent of their workouts were ugly and sloppy and that's okay yeah, you know, I, I think that is a, a very good distinction. And again, often it comes with perfectionists, type A, distance runners, etc. as we expect every workout to go well. And we expect it to like nail it. And then if you create that expectation, often what happens is when they struggle on something, when the messiness inevitably rears its head, then they go from, you know, okay to freak out despair if you set the expectation right one workout a couple workouts isn't going to dislodge you from the track right it's just part of the process and i think you know hopefully what we've conveyed in this episode is it's not a bad it it's not you know negative or a bad thing as a coach or to your athletes to convey reality. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Right. It's not being negative to be like, Hey, this is going to be a messy journey or to go to your athletes and be like, Hey, 
I'm not going to be perfect on all these workouts I write and predict. Like we're going to have to adjust. And the adjustment doesn't mean that like things are wrong. It's just part of the process. And I often think we set people up poorly when we have this assurity, this certainty, this, you know, two plus two equals four. And we're always going to make move upwards in this progress. And it just isn't reality. And sometimes in high school, we get away with it for a little bit because kids have this wonderful thing called puberty and they improve, you know, naturally because of it. But it just sets you up for not being able to handle these, you know, messiness, the roadblocks, et cetera, versus reality. If you set them up with, hey, this is this is going to be a rocky road. They're able to be more resilient, I think. And that's, you know, I think... It's just reminding us, go back to basics and like read the classics like once runner, right? The trials and miles, the miles of trials. There's trials, right? That's the whole point. It's ups and downs. And if you haven't read it recently, go back and read it. It's one of those things that deserves an annual rereading, whether you're a coach and or an athlete. Because, you know, in it, in that novel, it encapsulates that rocky road to the top, right? And just the intense fatigue or sometimes feeling of isolation and despair or, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen, you know, next week. Am I really getting better for all this hard work I'm doing? Right. That's a really important thing to um, call out on a daily basis with the athlete and saying, you know, look, and I remind like say the high school athletes I'm working with all the time, they'll have a certain time goal they want to run. I go, I go, you're not in control of that time, nor am I, but you are in control of your effort. And so if we can execute the race plan, if you can move well, if you can remember when things get a little choppy during the race, how to get back, you know, on task. And for the majority of the race, feel like, hey, I was able to be very focused and in the moment and control the controllables, then maybe the time will be something you like. And maybe it won't. I don't know. (laughs) No one knows. And that's that is the thing we have to remember. It's snake oil salesmen are going to tell you, I know the way to get you to run this time, this pace. And we will fall for it left and right, whether it's this, you know, formula, this velocity, this mileage, we will fall for it because we want the certainty that our work, our hard work is going to yield the exact fruit we want. But that also takes out of the journey a little bit of the surprise and delight, a little bit of the excitement, because we don't know in competition. That's the whole freaking point. You know, and oftentimes it's like we also have to be, you know, steadfast and realize, too, sometimes when an athlete is competing at their best level ever, their highest level, race after race, workout, workout, just like, you know, knocking down um, glass ceilings for them, they also might be on the precipice of catastrophic injury. (laughs) I always actually get the most kind of like on needles when someone's just, you know, amazing workouts, amazing races for them. We're in faster and or more or better than they ever have. And I'm like, yee, we better, we better just, you know, kind of step back a little bit or, you know, pull in the reins because, you know, never forget like the tales, Chris Zelensky, right? An amazing year amazing year like most phenomenal year in american distance right sub 27 american record no super shoes sub 13 several times and then after that amazing year of training build up racing phenomenal 
career ending, essentially hamstring injury in training in the fall, that next fall. Right. And it sucked. It, same thing with Alan Webb. Right. Remember Alan, like 2007 American record ran like 142 or something crazy for the eight. Right. Uh, U.S. outdoor championship record in the 15. And then boom, essentially career derailing Achilles injury. Right. And it's like, we hype it up as it's like, Oh, I got to produce the next greatest feat. And it's like, no, 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 just, just get to, uh, you know, that elevation and then just be okay with that elevation you're at, because it's like the idea of going to base camp to the summit of, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro, whatever that little extra bit to go that little extra height, uh, higher height on that journey to the top might require more or 10 times as much resources and energy as it required to get to that base level or that that current elevation that athletes at. So we got to be okay sometimes with just being like, "Hey, this is good enough right here. Let's let's not poke Pandora's box because we might open a whole another bag of worms by trying to inch out a little um, higher elevation on that road to the top." Yeah, I think that's such you know that's such a good point. It's whether you're Chris Zelensky or Alan Webb or just, you know, some high school or college kid at your peak performance, we often are playing with fire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's, it's better to be aware of that than to like, you know, blissfully think that this, this period, this, this point is going to keep going for forever and we're invincible well and that's always so, like the conversation i'd have with professional athletes too right or like the sub elite athletes i'd work with is saying well where's where's the level of competence we need to get you to okay great now we can get you there and we can sustain you there for you know a long period of time over the course of a season if your goal is to race frequently to make monies at these road miles uh you know summer road or summer um uh, track miles or what have you. But if your goal is to ascend to a certain peak that aligns with, say, qualifying for a championship or winning a championship at whatever level, that's a different journey and a different dialogue. And we have different aggress- aggression and also different cautions along that path. So two, it's really important to understand like where what you're trying to um, you know, prepare the athlete for. Because some athletes just want to be in kind of like, pretty like the Sarah Hall effect, right? Pretty consistent fitness year round with no big bumps up or down, right? But those other athletes who want to oscillate and maybe who want to go up to the higher elevation for a period of time have to remember, hey, look, you can go up there, but then we got to take you back down to base camp. Otherwise, there's not enough oxygen up there and you're going to pass out. (laughs) So again, it's a matter of priorities about what you want to do as a coach and an athlete in that relationship and where where we're trying to graduate them to. Yes, exactly. And I think it comes back to something we talked about earlier, which is like, know what kind of athlete you are at this point in this stage, you know, that it's such an important piece. And the Sarah Hall example gets at it very clearly. She knows what kind of athlete she is and what she enjoys and what she can do at this stage of her career. So, okay. Thank you for listening. I think this is a great place to stop and sum up, sum it up, which is that <laughs> just be real with yourself, with your athletes. Take the time to 
like understand the nuance and messiness that is coaching, that is people, that is training, realize that it doesn't, we can't promise, you know, with 99% certainty that you're going to run faster or you're going to get reach X performance. The road to the top, although it's a worthwhile journey, is very rocky. And if you accept that difficulty, you're going to be in a better place to face the challenges and be resilient in doing so.